Okay, let's do this. Let's roll, baby. Our very first full episode of Five Years Time, the podcast. First of all, hello, I'm Darcy. And I'm Harry. If you have absolutely no idea who we are. Which you probably won't. <laughs> and why we're starting a podcast. Check out our mini episode, So Who Are We? And you can find out all the deets on us and our new pod. This is our very first episode with a guest and what a guest it is to start with. You can say that again. I can't believe we're here already. All those months ago when the podcast was just an idea... After hard work, stepping out of our comfort zone and some serious networking, we have some brilliant interviews that we are just so thrilled to be able to share with you. And if the podcast can give just one person motivation, inspiration or some reassurance, then we'll feel very proud. We will indeed. Oh, yes, we will. Oh, yes, we will. Oh, yes, we will the most. We shall. We shall. We shall. We shall indeed. We shall finish. End. End. How are you feeling, babe? I'm actually feeling quite nervous, to be honest. How are you? I'm feeling hungry. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought I'd be honest. I really fancy some peanut butter on toast. Mm, that does sound good. Or cheese on toast. Anyway, right, let's concentrate. Apart from that, I am feeling super, super excited. Me too. Our first guest is serious TV gold. I know. I think she's a national treasure. Okay, you're making me more nervous now. Let's get to it. <laughs> okay. So our very first guest for five years time is, drumroll please, Kate Garraway, TV presenter and broadcaster and radio DJ on Smooth FM. We are beyond excited to interview Kate and find out about her amazing career. She has been working in the entertainment and media industries for 30 years now. We are going to be chatting to Kate about her career, life in the public eye and some tough challenges that she has faced. We are recording this podcast at the beginning of December and the UK is in a very funny place at the moment. We have just come out of another lockdown, but things are starting to look up and we are feeling really Christmassy. So here we go with the first episode of Five Years Time, the podcast. We hope you enjoy. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. We really do appreciate it. This is a busy time of year for everyone and we know you especially have a lot to deal with this year. So before we start, how are you and the family? Well, I think it's been a really tough year for everybody, hasn't it? I think everybody's hoping that 2021 will bring, oh, just a bit of hope and relief. Uh, The vaccine is here now, so everyone's hoping that will help COVID, I think, and help us all to sort of regain some normality. Um, And it's been really tough for us because Derek got very sick in the beginning of March. And even though we're hoping can recover, it's taking a very, very long time. We don't know how much he can recover. So that's impacted on us, obviously, dramatically. So it's been really difficult. I think in a weird kind of way, you know, talking about work as we have that actually 
for lots of people, the lots of people have been reviewing what they do. I think it's been a really dramatic change in people's lives. A lot of people had to work from home or their industries have been decimated. So they've had to review what they want to do. And I think hopefully one of the positives might be that people will come out of it with maybe a different view on the way they work, you know, in the future. Uh, for me, I had to stop work because we had to self-isolate for a long period. And then because Derek was sick, it, it wasn't possible to work. But then I, when I went back, it gave me a different perspective on what I do because you sort of see it in a different way. So the radio, for instance, was just lovely because it had been such a big thing for people's lives to have radio and have music coming into their lives. And, you know, people turn to smooth radio not to get news, although there is news on their news bulletins. I think they look at it for an escape. And so it's been lovely to be part of being able to provide that. And then GMB obviously is very heavily into providing news on the pandemic. But that's been helpful as well, because it's given me a different perspective on how it's affected everybody. So I think you do view work slightly differently when you go through a personal crisis. It becomes, in some ways, more important because it gives you a sense of normal but then also you can put it into perspective with with other things as well yeah of course it's really nice to hear you find those positives in what has yeah. been you know like you say a dark year for everyone yeah and it almost it almost sounds like you even appreciate going to work more because you've got that kind of escapism and you know you, you see familiar faces it keeps you busy and I think your career almost becomes even more important because it's yeah, something to do it is and it's a connection with people isn't it you know it's a connection with people that um that takes you out of yourself I think we've all experienced quite a lot of isolation and a lot of loneliness and massive change in routine and the things that we might have done to lift your spirits like go to the cinema go to the theatre go and exercise, go and play sports, have all been really limited or non-existent. So it's been even more important to kind of find a way of, of a community. And actually, I guess at its best, work is a community, isn't it? We're really lucky in the world of media that actually that's very much the case because, you know, you're very aware of people listening or watching are also relying on you to lift their spirits and give them the information they need to get on with the day you know mm. and I suppose in your in your community as, as you call it that is quite close so I suppose you've had all that extra support which must be really nice when in a time when you can't yeah. see your friends yeah. and family it's nice to know that you can see some people that do really support you well funny enough it's been actually quite a dramatic change so normally when on Good Morning Britain I go into work and I go straight to the newsroom and the production office and see all the gang there. But we have been able to do that. So we've had to go straight to our dressing rooms through a side door. We've had to be briefed on the phone. Or sometimes the producer comes down, he has to sit in the corridor with a mask on two metres away, which just feels a bit odd, like he's naughty and he's been told to sit outside the classroom. <laughs> so actually, weirdly, in that sense, there's fewer camera crew in the studio, fewer sound guys. We mic ourselves up at the moment. Uh, and in, in the radio, it's like a ghost ship. So a lot of people are working from home. So all the teams that can work from home are. And you're kind of going in one entrance of the building um, and going to the studio. And then and then you see your producer. 
but actually he's distance as well. And so it has been very different. But I guess what it's meant is that you've been trying to, like everybody has, everything's been on Zoom and FaceTime. And also then you become very aware of the viewers and the listeners because they become the sort of community. Mm. So in that sense, it, it kind of helps you focus in that way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. So obviously you've just been talking about your current jobs at yes. GMB and Smooth, of course. Yes. Do you mind if we take it right back to your childhood sure, and sure. kind of find out if these careers and jobs you have now were always the type of ones you envisaged for yourself or dreamed of, or if it took you a bit longer to work out what you wanted to do? Yeah. Where did it all start for you? Well, when I was very little, I wanted to be a vet. Oh. I was desperate to be a vet and I did some work experience in veterinary surgery and really loved it. Although my parents were slightly worried that I was going to end up like, or, you know, or Creatures Great and Small or Dr. Doolittle because... I kind of didn't like the idea of anybody having to be, any animals having to be put down or anything. And oh. I was just like, I'll take them home, I'll take them home. And they were like, we really can't have every animal that comes into veterinary surgery. And then I started doing my A-levels. And at that time, and I think maybe still true today, that you actually had to get higher A grades at A-level to be a vet than a doctor because the competition was so tough. And there was no way that I was going to get an A at A-level in physics or maths. So I was like, uh, if I don't become a vet, I don't know that I actually want to do sciences generally. So I kind of jumped ship in my first term of A-levels and thought this is not going to happen. I think I got like 11% in my chemistry exam at Christmas <laughs> in my first A-level. I was like, yeah, this is not going to go to plan. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of like, okay. And they were like, no, we're sure you do better. And I was like, yes, but the standard is going to be so high. So I then swapped and I did English and history. I still did the biology and uh, swapped and then thought, mm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So I'm going to do a degree in English. But I actually ended up doing a degree in English and political history, like a joint honours. And I was interested in politics at a young age. And I was really interested in kind of how the world worked. So were you quite academic as a young person? I don't think I was a natural high flyer. I was kind of a hard worker. I was kind of a geeky, do my homework kind of person. So I did end up doing okay, but I wasn't kind of naturally brilliant, I don't think, at all. And um, so I ended up with sort of okay Bs and Cs, A-levels, but not sort of like Oxford or Cambridge kind of A-levels. And um, went off to Bath to do English and history and in those days, I know this makes it sound like my life was in black and white, but they didn't have media degrees. So you couldn't do media studies. It was, I think there were a few colleges that were offering it, but it was considered quite flaky. And so the route to journalism or broadcast journalism was that you did your degree and then you did postgraduate at like Cardiff or City or the University of London. There were very few places that did broadcast journalism courses and they were really expensive. And then we didn't have a radio station set up at the college either. There's so much more facilities now for people to get involved in things. Um, it was quite a sciencey university, actually. It wasn't, there weren't many um, sort of humanities degrees. So it was, there was a lot of engineering and stuff and they didn't really have that there. 
But having said that, that I didn't know at that point I wanted to do it, my mum tells this story of me when I was little and I had an old reel-to-reel tape recorder that my Uncle Rob had moved up to a hi-fi and he gave me his old reel-to-reel. Even a hi-fi is like something from a museum now. And so he moved up to that and he gave me his old reel-to-reel and a microphone and I went around interviewing all my toys and at the time, there was a big scandal, which again, you won't, there was somebody called Margaret Thatcher, who at the time was education secretary, and she'd stopped free milk for primary school kids. Yeah. Yes. And there was a big thing about Thatcher, Thatcher, milk snatcher. And my parents were horrified that this milk had gone and it was terrible. So there must have been a lot of talk about Margaret Thatcher in the house. I was delighted because the milk would arrive at like 8.30 in the morning and it would sit there until 11.30 and it was like creamy and horrible. And it took me years to be able to drink milk again. So I thought this was the best thing ever that we no longer had to drink this horrible warm milk. But they were horrified. And I think they must have been talking a lot about how this was a terrible thing. So I interviewed... My doll. And I was both the interviewer and the doll. And she was Margaret Thatcher. And I was interviewing her. We still got the tape. I I must get my parents to find it and transfer it. And I was saying, uh, why is it that you've taken milk away from children that still need it? And she was going, well, because there's a cost involved. And and it's hilarious. I was doing this impression of Margaret Thatcher back again. So my mum would say now that either I was going to do something involving interviewing or I was going to be a ventriloquist or (laughs) I was going to be a mad woman. By the sounds of it, growing up, you did have quite an interest, even though you maybe not have acknowledged it. I think so. I think I probably did. But because the idea of working television or radio seemed out of the... It wasn't something that people thought they would do. I think things have exploded now with YouTube, with the kit you can get fairly reasonably. You know, people can set themselves up to broadcast and social media means that people are used to the idea of recording things and broadcasting them. So that kind of direct communication between people and people who want to make stuff is there. And I think people just think they can do it and can do it. It's Mm. really wonderful. Whereas, you know, the idea that you would get a job at the BBC or at ITV just seemed impossible. It wasn't something that anybody did. I knew of, nobody at school had. So I don't think it would have entered my head as something that you could do. So there wasn't anyone in your family doing something similar at the time? No, no, no. There's nobody in the family that did it. There's nobody in the family that would have thought of it. So, so I am a freak deek in the family. <laughs> and actually, I think my parents would have thought that journalism was a bit of a dodgy career. I think they did when I said I was going to do it. I, it felt a bit sort of tabloid and scuzzy and exploitative and... They feel differently now, obviously. <laughs> but um, I think they sort of thought, oh, what does that mean? Because you think of people... You think of tabloids. When I started in the 80s, it was, it was pretty, you know, News of the World was doing exclusives. I don't think they felt like it was something they imagined that I would do. It seemed like quite a brutal world. Previously, you mentioned about there wasn't really a straight route into media. So you yes. said that you went in the study of English and history. Yes. So was that the plan to then go 
intermediate after university so what was the next I didn't really have a plan actually I thought I'm just going to get a degree and see what happens I was very interested in law mm-hmm. I um, started to look into doing a conversion course to being a solicitor or a barrister I kind of liked the idea of a barrister <laughs> I don't know whether I would have ever been any good at one and I did start to look into training as that and then I had debt student debts obviously like we all have when you finish and so I, I had to get a job and I tried to get a job with Bath and West Evening Chronicle um, but they rejected me oh. I know <laughs> how dare they, they? Uh, I can understand why because I think I was writing in very flowery kind of language I don't think I really understood how to write for, for newspapers at that point and also they were already at that point not taking on many people so I moved back home and I started working for a law firm called CCH Traditions which was like published documents it was at the point where Europe was opening up and there was lots of new European laws coming in and lots of things were being published to help the legal profession understand and I actually really enjoyed the law and I really enjoyed what they were producing but it was I found it very difficult because I would get the bus from home to Bista and I would arrive at my desk and there were people there that could work at their desk all day and they didn't need to speak to anybody and I just found it strange I just thought oh you know I've got to do something where you don't just go into a cubicle and you have to speak to people and I was trying to think what to do and on the bus from Oxford to Bista I sat next to a guy who worked for the Oxford Mail and I said to him, oh, it must be really interesting doing what you do. And he said to me, what I love about my job is people get up in the morning and they see something interesting and then they go to work. Whereas what my job is, is the most interesting thing that's happening in my area that day is the thing I then go and do and find out more about. And I thought, God, that sounds really good. So I started talking to him about how to get into journalism. And he said, Uh, you should think about radio because it's really opening up and a new independent radio station called Fox FM, which I don't think exists anymore, I just started. So I phoned them up and said, would you mind if I came in and did some work experience? And they said, okay, because they were like a small station and desperate for people to help out. And radio, you can get work experience in because it's literally just a microphone and recording. It's not like television where they have to invest. You had to have a soundman, a cameraman, sometimes also a director to go and do stories. Whereas radio, they could give you a tape recorder and you could just practice yourself. So I went in and I couldn't drive at that point. So my blessing, my dad used to get up really early in the morning and take me into Fox FM for the breakfast shift. And, I, and people there were really kind and took me out on stories and showed me how to edit because in those days it was literally a piece of tape which you cut with a razor blade and wow. stuck together, wow. which is actually an incredibly satisfying thing to do. I loved it. You just would listen to the sound going back and forward and cut it. It's a real art. You do the same now digitally, but there was something really lovely about literally sticking it together. So once you can do, once you could edit and once you knew how to operate the kit, then you could start to kind of really begin. And funnily enough, there was a girl there called Abby Donald who was working there as a reporter. And when I went in and they said, oh, this is Kate. She really wants to do some work experience. Who will help? And you could see everybody sort of go, oh, and look down <laughs> at their feet thinking, oh God. And she was like, I'll take you out. And... I ended up working with her and she ended up being editor at uh, GMTV. So I worked with her again at Central News and then finally at GMTV. So we've actually known each other for about 
probably about 27, 28 years now. And then from Fox FM, I then got a job at Radio Oxford, BBC Radio Oxford, being the traffic and travel girl. There was a lot of traffic's built up on the A34. (laughs) And everybody said to me, don't take a job as a traffic and travel person because you can't then transcend into journalism. But I didn't really have any options because it was really expensive. The courses were about £2,500, which is money I didn't have to go off and train at Cardiff and City. I got places, but I couldn't afford to go and do them. So I just thought I'm just going to have to make it work. So I took a job as traffic and travel girl. And then after I'd finished the breakfast show, I then said, oh, can I go out and cover some stuff? So they'd let me go out. And they used to have something called a radio car, which was so exciting. It was a big sort of estate car, which had an arrow where you pressed a button and the arrow went up and you broadcast live from it. Of course, you can do that from your phone now, just using digital technology. But you literally had to find a radio signal. (laughs) I remember crashing it once because there was a very low bridge and that was bad. Let's go back and say that I'd scraped it. But um, but um, that was really exciting because you felt like you were driving to stories and you put your mask up, even though it's kind of like fates and, you know, local events and things. It was still really, really exciting. And then there was a job um, advertised at Central News, which had just opened up in Abingdon near Oxford. They'd opened up a sort of a, a Central News South, they called it. It was for a news assistant. I didn't really know what a news assistant was, but it sounded like something that was really good. And actually at Central South, it was essentially somebody that counted in the gallery. It's like what they call a PA, but a production assistant really at ITV. And you counted the bulletins, everything. And I went in for the interview and they said, look, we think that you're not right for this because your background is different. But we are doing some training schemes, ITV training schemes. So if you apply for that and see if you can get on that, and I did. And how old were you at this point? I was quite old, actually, really, for starting out. I was probably about 23. So because I'd swapped my A-levels, I'd already gone to university late, a year late, because I'd had to sort of change everything around. And then I'd already worked for a year or two afterwards. Do you think being that little bit older meant you had some more life skills or experience that helped you? I think so. And I think you think it's old at the time because there's people coming straight out of university going into jobs. But actually, it's not really because everything takes time. And actually, sometimes, as you say, you've done other things, you've seen different bits of life, you've worked on other things. It actually can be an advantage. And I've done lots of other jobs in in between. I worked in a packing factory, packed toilet rolls in Abingdon, actually, which was really good fun. Uh, It was really, really good fun. And so lots of jobs that you do along the way. And I think that also means that you're mixing with different people, with different ambitions, with different lives. And that all brings something more to the job when you do it, doesn't it? You yeah, know? and yeah. in the job you currently do, you meet yeah. people from all walks of life and interview them and have to you yeah, know, find exactly. out about them. Yeah, exactly, and so understand what the exactly. life is like. You know, I did quite a lot of manual labour, not like digging roads or anything because I'm too physically useless. But um, <laughs> actually, it does help you understand that when people say they're shattered when they've been working all day, they are shattered and it's quite different from working all day in an office. You are physically exhausted if you're doing manual work. So it does give you a different perspective when you do different things, I think, first mm-hmm. along the way. When you're interviewing someone and they say they're tired, you think, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> you know, I bet you really are shattered. Yeah. And it's kind of a different tiredness, isn't it, from mental tiredness as well, which is also exhausting. So anyway, so doing all these other things, I think, does help. I don't think you need to feel that you waste time if you do other stuff, because I know it can feel like you're competing with other people that have come straight out. But I don't think you are, because I think you bring different things to it. Mm. 
how you end up there is is a is kind of part of the journey, isn't it? Really. So by the sounds of it, everything kind of fell into place quite well. But was there a specific turning point that you thought this is really exciting? This could really be your future in journalism. Yes, I think I always kind of thought that I wouldn't be lucky enough that it was a job for life. I just kept thinking, okay, I've got a year's contract. This is great. I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can do it. And actually, I think people now have more flexible thinking because I think jobs do change now and things do evolve and people do think about things as not necessarily for life in the way that I was encouraged to think you had a job for life. Um, so I just kind of thought, keep going and keep keep taking it while it's there and just keep learning and just keep thinking that you're lucky to be doing it, really. Mm. And then suddenly you find you've been doing it for a long time and you think, okay, maybe this is a career now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so was there not one specific moment where you kind of thought, oh, like, this is my big break? Well, I don't know if there was one specific moment, really. I think that there was a moment when actually, it's a cliche, but it genuinely happened, where I was uh, producing the late night bulletin after news at 10, that there was a local bulletin for Central News, and the person was sick and couldn't go on. And I had to go on and do the bulletin. I looked like a rabbit in the headlights. <laughs> but I did really, really like it. And it was the first time I'd done anything on, on camera. And I thought, actually, because we were really encouraged then not to be on camera. News has changed quite a lot. So the idea was the story was the story. You weren't the story. Now I think that broadcast news, people like to have a face that leads them into it. So when I started doing stuff on screen, I felt like this is really exciting. And it feels like a big responsibility as well, and an honour, actually, to be able to bring people news that will affect them. And you so you feel very conscious of getting the facts right, obviously, but also the tone of it right. So you're not freaking people out, but you're telling them the information they need, I think. Mm. And did you ever get nervous? Did you ever get, you know, sort of stage fright, really? I still get nervous, actually. I still think there's a moment when you think, oh, my God. Okay, I think, actually, the day when you stop being nervous is a bad day. I'm not as nervous the second we go on air as I used to be because I'm used to it. Mm. But the actual being on air, I'm less frightened about. But definitely when things happen, and they do all the time, And concentrating, yeah, I do get nervous, yeah, still. And I think that's quite important, really, because actually I think you'd be casual if you weren't nervous. Yeah, it shows that you Mm. care about what you're saying. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, It's a bit of adrenaline, which is helpful, especially early in the morning. You need a bit of adrenaline. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, GMB, you must wake up at, what what time is it? About 2, 2.15, yeah. I get picked up about half two. But I do get up very early because um, the others don't get up as early as me because I've learned over the years that the night before you can spend a lot of time preparing and then overnight everything changes and things get dropped and you think, you know, that's a bit of my life I'll never get back. Um, Although actually all preparation is good, to be honest. I do, I'm still a huge preparer. I still make as many notes now as I did for my first broadcast. I'm such a geek in that way. But that relaxes me because I think if I know everything I need to know, Mm -hmm. then I don't have to worry about not knowing. So 
you know, we're really supported at ITV. They give you briefs and things, so you're not having to start researching everything from zero, which is great. Um, I'm probably the same as you in that geeky way. I just love to prepare. You know, yeah. If I have a um, if I have a big tournament on, I'll, I'll do all my practice before, and I'll have so many notes. Yeah. And sometimes, like you said, situations change, and you have to develop on a way on getting better to kind of overcome uh, when yeah, things overcome change. These hurdles, yeah. So, and I think actually the preparation, having said that's a bit of my life, you never get back. It's never really wasted, is it? No. Because you've got it there for the next time. So your career leads you to do exciting and you yeah. know different things and challenge yourself in, in different ways, such as you've done the reality shows Strictly Come yes. Dancing and yes. obviously last year's I'm a Celeb. Yes. How do you find like that side of your career? Because obviously that's quite different from your normal day-to-day. It's very different. It's very different. It's completely different. I mean, the jungle is so different because I guess that preparation thing we were talking about and that sense of being in control goes completely out the window because you don't know what's happening four minutes in the next. And it's not really about what you're providing. You just have to be yourself, which is very unnerving because you haven't got anything to fall back on in terms of preparation. I think doing different things is really helpful in your career. I think it stops you getting stale. Um, I think it shakes you up. I think you always learn something new. So any show that I do, whether it be being a contestant on something like The Chase or Tipping Point or um, or anything you appear on, you always learn something new. Even if you're the guest and you're not actually working in inverted commas, you just learn different ways that people do things. You learn from other people. And I think it's really good to keep you fresh. So I've been basically doing the same job for a long time. I've been working in breakfast television on ITV and all its many forms and guises for a long time. So I think doing different things does keep you fresh, which is good. And do you think, like I said, that their challenge is really at the end of the day? Yeah. Are you the type of person, do you like challenging yourself? Really, I actually quite like just sitting down with a cup of tea, but Don't actually prefer yeah. <laughs> Don't really like physical Don't really like being scared. I will never walk off a plank off the side of a building again. I've done it now, that's it. Um, unless I have to, but maybe you have to. But having said that, doing the jungle and forcing myself to be braver than I would normally ever choose to be, I think did help prepare me for this really tough year that we've all been going yeah. through. And I think actually pushing yourself and challenging yourself is really important. It yeah, is. And doing different things is really important for your career and for your life. And nothing is ever wasted. You think, oh, why did I agree to do this sometimes? But then you actually do it and you think, actually, that was really helpful. So mm. I don't think anything's ever wasted. Throughout your career, especially this year, everyone's faced hurdles. But yeah. in your career specifically, have there been many hurdles that you've faced and yeah. had to overcome and if so do you have a kind of coping mechanism or some advice that you would give to people facing hurdles in their in their own career whatever that may be hmm. yeah I think there are always hurdles I think there are always hurdles and some of the hurdles might be that it's just not right for you I used to dream of being Cat Dealey I'd love to have done a pop program 
my young days. But I don't think that was ever going to be me. So I think sometimes you don't have to give up on dreams, but also there are things that you're better at, which you should allow lead you to certain Mm. areas. I also think you can't really control things, can you, in life at all? Um, I think the only things you can control is how hard you work, looking after yourself and making sure that Uh, My friend James Haskell would say, the only thing you control are the things you put in your body and what you eat or drink. And he's right. You can control your own energy levels and you can control how hard you work and you can control how you treat other people. And beyond that, everything else is kind of out of control, really. Mm. So I think you just have to grab the opportunities when they come along. At the end of the day, you know, if you don't get a job or if things don't work out, you just have to sidestep it a bit, I think, because there's Mm. always another way. Are there people you find inspirational or who have influenced you in any way? There's loads of people around, I think, they are inspirational. When I started out, there was a reporter called Charles Wheeler. He, in his own right, was a, a very successful correspondent. And I remember watching a broadcast of his years ago, and it was during the conflict in the former Yugoslavia And there were scores and scores of Kosovans having to flee uh, Serbia. And there was just a trail into the night of these poor souls carrying their belongings as they kind of fleed the war. And he was doing the thing that I like, which is he was standing there talking about the story, not just reporting on the story. And he talked about how there was a little child that was about six that had lost their parents but was just keeping walking with them. It's going to make me cry now. And he said she just keeps walking because she doesn't know what else to do. I just thought, oh, my God. And he kind of, because he used emotion as well as fact, he he summed up much more the plight of being a refugee than just numbers and figures and facts. And I just thought he was a brilliant reporter. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. That's what good journalism can do, can really bring a story to a life to connect with people that you have no connection with. That's a really touching thing to hear, Kate. And there was a former editor of Jim Me, who's now editor of This Morning, called Martin Frizzell. And I can't bear to give him credit because (laughs) I take the mickey out of him all the time. But he was a massive influence on me as well. He, I think, pioneered in my eyes, others might say others did it, a kind of walkie-talkie, which is common now, reporting where on a live, it was a crazy thing. I think it was some kind of submarine that had been open for the public to see. And he just did this brilliant live where the presenter threw to him and said, uh, tell us more. And rather than standing and talking, he went, let me show you around. And he walked around the submarine and said, look at this. And this is where they have to sleep. And I know everybody does that now, but this is a long time ago. I just thought, my God, that is just brilliant. It was just gripping. Such an immersive way. Such an immersive way of doing it. And people didn't really do that. They didn't do those kind of, walking talking kind of lives now everybody does it and it's commonplace but it felt really breakthrough yeah and there was also a guy called tony on nationwide an incredible show called nationwide uh which you won't remember which came on after the six o'clock news on the bbc and it was a magazine program and i think it's kind of what breakfast television at its best is really, which is it was looking at the news less as a bulletin and fleshing it out. And I used to love watching it. My dad would watch the news and then I'd come in and watch Nationwide. I didn't, I was very little, so I didn't really watch the news. And uh, there was this amazing report, which again feels so commonplace, where he'd gone to live with people who were homeless. And people do that 
quite often now, don't they? It's almost mm-hmm. a cliche, that kind of immersive way of reporting. And he'd lived with it and he didn't find all of them to be angels and he was pretty honest about how some were very difficult. But it was just absolutely gripping and that was one of the first things I'd ever seen that. So, yeah, there are lots of lots of people that have influenced you. But then sometimes it's you just take bits from some people that you work alongside. Susanna, I think, is a brilliant news presenter. I've learned a lot from her, I feel, working with her. Um, Richard Arnold is a complete genius at comedy. <laughs> so do you believe that you're constantly learning? And constantly adapting? learning, constantly learning, constantly stealing, actually, <laughs> is the truth of it. <laughs> Thinking, that's clever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that myself. Constantly stealing, yeah. Uh, Eamon Holmes is a brilliant presenter. When I first went to GMTV, I learned so much from him. I can't be him. I can't do the <laughs> cheeky chappy uh, Belfast boy thing. But there's just things that he does, which are so clever um, in interviews, which I still go back to and think, oh, I'm going to do a bit of an Eamon Holmes today on this one. So, yeah, you learn all the time, I think. Yeah. So talking about learning, is, is there... Anything- and Piers Morgan as well. Obviously, <laughs> Piers Morgan is yeah. everyone's inspiration. Put him in at the end there. <laughs> um, is he is, there actually. He's brilliant. moments or a moment that you kind of remember being on air or, you know, wherever that might be, yeah. and thinking, oh, no, this is not quite going right, or yeah. there being a mistake. And that something you can laugh about now, but in that moment you just think, oh, no, this is kind of the oh end God, of the world. Oh, my God, there's millions. <laughs> there's millions of things. There's millions of things. Some of them are, um, yeah, millions of things, because you, you are going to get things wrong, especially with breaking news. There's one famous moment in Ben and I's world, Ben Shepard and I's world, GMTV, where... Um, we were doing an interview in the early days of Fake Tan, where Fake Tan wasn't the big thing it is now. It just started to get more products onto the market. And so everyone was deciding fake tanning was good. Some beds were bad. So we got this group of models in. <laughs> and the idea was that we'd put the fake tan on and we'd judge afterwards how well it did. But of course, nobody really realised that it takes hours for the fake tan to develop. So we decided to do it before the break and then after the break they hoped to see the result and there were various different ones including like a cabinet they went into and of course nothing was developing and I was just filling and filling and filling time thinking what am I going to do and then I threw to the break and I came back and still nothing had developed and I was filling time and in the end out of desperation I turned to the models who weren't really meant to be being interviewed it was the product managers the leaders that were being interviewed and I said so how do you feel have you faked out before and he said I'm Russian I'm so happy to be in this country and I was like oh my god and I could just hear Ben off camera just crying anyway we ended it and I was like thank you for leaving me with that one and actually now we generally do interviews together but in those days you did one did one and then one did the next interview and split it up and he was just like you're on your own you're on your own um so yeah we still laugh about that so yeah it felt like disaster at the time but of course it's not well it was a disaster but it's not the end of the world of course not everything um just a couple of questions to finish off a Mm. bit of um i suppose it's advice from you to people that listen yeah Um, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self yeah what would it be and why that's a tough one isn't it because you look back at things that you were worried about at the time and think actually it all worked out okay but maybe if you hadn't focused on it so hard and tried so hard to make it work maybe it wouldn't have then led you to the next stage so 
I don't like to say that wasn't important because I think things are important at the moment. You know, even with my kids now, they're worrying about things which I know aren't really the end of the world, but it's important to them at the time. So when you're in that moment, when you're in that moment, yeah. And actually, maybe it does matter, you know, maybe it does matter that you that things are important and it's what shapes you. So I guess what I would say is maybe don't feel like each thing is the end of the world. If you don't get that job or if you aren't picked to do that interview or if you don't get that one thing, then it's not the end of the world because there's always other ways. And also, actually, sometimes the thing that you crave for most isn't the thing that makes you most happy. I think when most people start out, they think they want their own chat show like David Letterman. Mm. That feels like the pinnacle, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But actually... I've never really had my name above the billboard on breakfast television. There've always been other presenters that have been bigger than me, whether it be Eamon and Fiona, um, Christine and Adrian on Daybreak, um, Piers and Susanna. You know, uh, I've always been a kind of number two. And actually, I, I really like it because it doesn't really make any difference, actually doesn't really make any difference because you still get to do what you love. What you love. Yeah. And actually you form a relationship where viewers don't really know about all of that. And actually what I've learned is I love being part of a team. I love being part of a team. I don't know that I would really like to be a sole operator. Mm. But if they want to give me a chat show, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Last one, Kate. People, you know, people like us, young people, or yeah. you know, people in general would look at you and think, wow, what a success. You know, you've had such a long, prosperous career. Yeah. For you, are there still things that you would like to achieve? And, you know, in true five years time podcast style, in the next five years, are there things that you can see yourself hmm. achieving? Well, I'd love to do a quiz show. I've never done that. I'd love to host a quiz show. I didn't get the chance to get Breakfast at Garraway's away this year because of all that's happened. So we're going to do that next year. And I'd like to make that a success because that is a show on my own, yeah. as it were. So I'd like to do that. And I think just keep exploring different things. I'm really interested in gardening and nature. I'd like to do some more gardening. I'd like to do a gardening and nature show. So it's more about doing different things within the same medium that Maybe would be great. Maybe you can have a, a quiz show that incorporates gardening in some way. Oh know? my God. Oh <laughs> my God. This would garden. be amazing. Let's do it. Let's do it. all your goals into one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What would it be called? The garden rather than the chase. I don't know. Exactly. We'll work it out. We'll, we'll come up with a great title. I'm not good at titles, so I'll leave that one to someone else. Well, thank you so much for chatting not to us. All. It's just been such a it's pleasure. It's been lovely. And, you know, it's really nice to hear your, someone's journey and find out how you achieve some of these amazing things. It is really inspirational. So thank you. Well, it's a lot of luck as well, isn't it? It's luck and hard work. And then, um, yeah. But it's great. It's been great to be part of it. Thank you very much for doing it. It's a great idea you've got. I hope it's oh, really, really you. successful because I think it will help lots of people. Let's hope so. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Kate, thank and have a much. brilliant Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Wow. Wow, indeed. We are just reflecting on the amazing day we just had with Kate Garraway. I still can't believe we've just interviewed Kate Garraway. I know. We have just chatted to Kate for about an hour or so about what I can only describe as a phenomenal career. 
and such a down-to-earth lady as well oh she so was nice. so kind so generous gave us as much time of hers as we needed oh just the best day best day ever and of course we hope you all enjoy it as much as we enjoyed doing it and look out for our new episode next monday in which we will be interviewing another really cool guest head over to our instagram page at five years time the podcast to play guest the guest and be in a chance to win a five years time the podcast mug thank you so much for listening and please share with your friends how much you love the podcast see you soon goodbye for now